All right, friends, well, we're diving back into Exodus, and if you've not been with us um, in the last little while, uh, let me bring up to speed that we've looked at the first four chapters of Exodus uh, just in the the latter part of uh, term one, uh, sorry, term two, I should say, just a month or so ago, and we've got these uh, little uh, study booklets that we've put together that just kind of complement uh, the Bible passages that we're reading through, a lot of our growth groups are using them. Uh, and, uh, but in, in addition to that, even if you're in a not, not in a growth group, you're really welcome to pick one of those up from the welcome table. And it just gives you some helpful opportunities to reflect on what we're talking about here in, on Sundays um, through the week as well. Well, they're pretty honest words that we've just read, aren't they? Uh, that reading, almost towards its conclusion, Moses reported all of this to the Israelites but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. Um, a few years ago, a really close friend of mine died. Uh, Piers was a wonderful man who was full of energy and love and fun. He was an outdoor ed teacher. He was always on the go. But cancer has a way of sucking all of that out of a person. In his final year of life, Piers had to spend months and months in hospital down in Melbourne in pain, wasting away. And all of that, hundreds of kilometres uh, from the little country town of Mount Beauty that he called home, where his friends and his family lived, where we knew him from. Many people around Piers wondered if his sickness would cause him to doubt God. He was someone who was so full of energy and life and joy, so physically and intellectually capable, reduced to frailty, bedbound isolated, suffering without any apparent reason or purpose. Surely it's not what he deserved, such a godly, faithful man. Piers started writing a blog. We've got a couple of excerpts up here. He, he actually only got four entries in before he died. And I thought I'd read a couple of paragraphs from a post that he wrote after a particularly harrowing couple of months, during which he sort of was on the brink of death a couple of times. These are Piers' words. This time of unwellness has driven me back to wondering about God and his hand on my life in such a time of need. I know one thing is certain. He loves me with a love that is way beyond anything I can imagine. He declares many times in Scripture that this is so and also that he never, ever will abandon me nor leave me alone, even if it feels this is so. So, folks, I have seen and experienced God in many, many ways in this past eight weeks, even though the times have been tough. Have I felt let down or abandoned by God because I've been through this difficult time? No, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that God promises us an easy ride through life. But I do see plenty of evidence that He walks with us as we go through the tough times. And that has been my experience. Our friends, in those two paragraphs my dear friend, sums up what I hope we will learn from our passage in Exodus today. Uh, In the first paragraph, Piers wrote, "I, I know one thing is certain, God loves me with a love that is way beyond anything I can imagine. God is good. And in the second paragraph, have I felt let down or abandoned by God because I have been through this difficult time? No, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that God promises us an easy ride but I do see plenty of evidence that he walks with us. God is faithful. And I think in today's passage from Exodus, God is teaching us that whatever the circumstances, we can depend on his character 
and trust in his promises. That we have the wonder of listening to the good and faithful God. That's our end point for today. It's good to know where we're headed when we start, isn't it? Because I think that's what we've just read from in Exodus chapter 5 and 6. So to recap the story, as we jump in at chapter 5, 400 years before this point in time, Jacob's family have taken refuge in Egypt during a famine. And God blessed them and multiplied them and increased them abundantly into the people of Israel. And in fact, they'd grown so much that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he looked on them as a threat to national security. And so Pharaoh enslaved them. And he tried to breed them out of existence by killing off their male infants. And at that incredibly low point, the Israelites cried out to God, And we've read in recent months of God's compassion and his action plan to send Moses as an agent of rescue, together with his brother Aaron as his spokesman. And at the end of chapter 4, things are looking quite positive. These are the closing verses of Exodus chapter 4, where we read that Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they had heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. I mean, chapter 4 finishes on such a positive note. Moses was afraid that the Israelites' leaders wouldn't listen, but God assured them that they would, and they did. Things are off to a great start. But God had also warned Moses that Pharaoh would not listen. Not until he'd been compelled. And of course, by the end of our reading today, well, yeah, Pharaoh's not listening, but actually neither are the Israelites anymore too. And we might be thinking, gosh, what's happened? How did chapter 4 end so positively? And then by the time we got up to the middle of chapter 6, the Israelites aren't listening either. Well, we've read how Pharaoh responded, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now Pharaoh literally says, who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice? This theme of listening is right on view for us. Pharaoh is not interested in listening to the demands of some foreign god. In the worldview of ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh was a god. And so, if the God of Israel rocks up telling him what to do, well, Pharaoh takes it personally. This is another god getting in on his patch. And so, Pharaoh ratchets up the oppression on Israel, not just because he wants to get more work done, but because he's actually trying to defeat his competition. This is kind of a, this is a war of the gods issue. And so Israel are in a very tough situation. The slavery before, it was bad enough. Now it's even worse. Meet the same quotas, but get your own straw. And if case you're thinking, what kind of weird bricks were they making out of straw? Now that's like just the reinforcing structure. They made bricks out of clay, two key ingredients, clay, straw. Now they're being told, you've got to source your own supply chains. It was an impossible scenario and it was designed to break their spirits. We saw that in verse 8 and again in verse 17. What does Pharaoh say? What does he think is the charge that he gives them? You're lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. He is determined to break their spirit. 
And if we even make the slightest attempt to try and picture just how horrific their situation is, I'm sure we can appreciate how the people of Israel respond. They're worked to the bone, day in, day out. It is an impossible task. They are exhausted and the beatings follow. Pharaoh has set out to break their spirit and that is exactly what happens. As the people, first of all, they turn on Moses. We read that in verse 21. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You can hear their desperation. They're spent. They're done in. What was bad has now got worse and so they're venting their frustration and shooting the messenger Moses who seems to have made it worse. And Moses, he's broken too, right? Verse 22, we read Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. You can hear Moses' discouragement. He's spent. He's overwhelmed. Pretty confused. Now, of course, in a way, Moses is right. God has not rescued his people. But he's also got it wrong because he's, he's lost sight of the process and, and what God has said to him. God hasn't rescued his people yet. What a difference that one word can make, right? Yet. God had told Moses that Pharaoh would not listen, that God would have to act with his mighty hand to compel Pharaoh, that eventually Pharaoh would let them go. But you have not rescued your people at all. Isn't it fascinating insight into human nature that in the face of hardship, we can get impatient, can't we? And so Moses accuses God of not acting. You have not rescued your people at all. But let's not give Moses a hard time about it. Let's be honest that if we've faced anything like this, and I'm not sure that many of us will have faced anything as hard as the scenario described here, but we can easily imagine just how discouraging it would have been for Moses and for Israel. And I think as we look at how God responds, we see that God understands it too. It's one of the things that really came through to me in this reading is just how gentle God is. There's no rebuke. There's no kind of, come on guys, it's not that bad really, suck it up. No, there's just gracious reassurance. It's the God of compassion. Here's their concern and their complaints. It's just gracious reassurance as God takes them back to who He is and the promises that He's made. If you've got the passage open there in front of you, which I'd encourage you to do, have a look at that paragraph from verse 6, chapter 6, I should say, um, chapter 6 rather, uh, verse 2, where God says three times who He is. I am the Lord sitting behind that sort of small caps word. I am Yahweh. This is me, guys. In the midst of their suffering, God thinks that that knowing who He is should be a reassurance to them. I am the Lord. Because He's not just saying, I'm the boss, but I am Yahweh, your God. I am the personal God who reached out to a bloke named Abraham and made him these outrageous promises. I am the Lord, the God who walked with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
even when they doubted and they wandered and they rebelled, I am the Lord who has seen and heard the suffering of my people and I have come in compassion. I am the Lord who is good, who is faithful. And because this is who he is, well, God patiently repeats his promises to, to his scared and suffering people. He begins by addressing the problem right in front of them. It's Pharaoh, of course, with all of his hateful oppression. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. That's a summary of God's promise. But he unpacks it with just this kind of repeated statements of, of all of the things that he will do. And they're all about relationship with him. Chapter 6, verse 6, I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you. Chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you to the land I swore to you. I will give it to you. And none of these are new promises. God could have been saying, come on guys, we've been through this before. First with Abraham and again with Isaac and Jacob and most recently, just now with Moses, with the Israelite elders at the end of the chapter 4 and, and you heard and you believed and you worshipped. But in the face of their suffering, in response to their growing fears, God just patiently, graciously gives his promises once again. Because God knows it's tough. He's graciously offering loads of loving reassurance of who he is and what he will do. And I think we do really well to kind of pause and to reflect on how this impacts our own experience of, of hard times, that God understands that it, he's hard and he's not dismissive of them. But he's also clear that the circumstances of life aren't actually the most important thing either. You see, we could read a story like Exodus that we're going to unpack in the coming weeks and think that it's all about making circumstances in life easier. Less pain and suffering, more comfort and fun. But did you actually see what God's motivation here is? That it's his relationship with his people. What's God's goal in all of this? That through it all, they would know him. That was the purpose clause there in, in chapter 6, in all of those promises in verse 7 then you will know, this is why he's doing it, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And various people have said various things about the Bible's attitude to slavery because it was written in cultures where slavery was the norm. Exodus, along with many other passages, gives us a glimpse of God's hatred of slavery, the oppression that it brings. But fascinatingly, the Bible, as the pages unfold, don't look back on the Exodus event as a model for freedom from human suffering and oppressive systems. Consistently, whenever the Bible looks back on Exodus, it's a model of God's work in rescuing his people from slavery to sin. As a battle of the gods who would take ownership of his people. Exodus is a story for us of our slavery to our own sin and its consequences. So, for example, uh, Peter, writing to Christians scattered throughout the Mediterranean, um, salvation 
God's rescue of us as Christian people is described as being redeemed, purchased from slavery. This is one place of many that we could go to. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, bought from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, he goes on. Or in Romans 6 that we'll come to in a few weeks, uh, a couple of months time I should say, Uh, Romans 6 shows us the very real slavery that we are bound up in. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Exodus sets a pattern. It shows us God's hatred for the oppression of slavery, yes, expressed in human structures, but the big lesson of Exodus is that it is not a model for making our lives easier. It's a model for making God known as the God who is good and faithful, who rescues his people from the clutches of false gods and the power of sin. And so in our hardship, there are some big questions for us here. Will we come to God demanding that he change our circumstances? Or will we come longing for him to make himself known as the one who rescues us? As we pray, Lord, take away my pain and suffering. That is a good and right thing to pray. Will we also pray, teach me your goodness and your faithfulness? And I think it's a challenging thought that as Exodus has been written for us and for our instruction, we're actually taken back to reflect on how Israel responded even after they were offered this great reassurance. We're given this really blunt summary in chapter 6, verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, God's promises to them. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. And boy, they had reason to be discouraged, didn't they? They were physically spent, run into the ground, beaten black and blue, They were emotionally spent, discouraged, hopeless, demoralised. They were clearly impatient for change. And I hope you don't have to imagine very hard to kind of appreciate that at so many different points in life, I don't think we're all that different ourselves. Maybe that's actually the point that you're at right now. Physically spent, emotionally drained, longing for things to change. And in such hardship... Well, God can use those times to turn us towards Him. He can use our suffering and pain to kind of unstop our ears so that we will finally pay attention to Him. But I think there's a warning here in Exodus against the really common human tendency that when the going gets hard, we actually do the opposite. Instead of turning to God to listen to Him, to trust Him, we turn to Him in anger and resentment and discouragement. We actually stop listening to God and start accusing Him. The Israelites did not listen because of their discouragement and harsh labour. And we can understand it. And yet it's such a tragic response in the midst of suffering. Because discouragement has a way of getting right up in our face. Right up in our face and clouding our perspective on anything. As I've been reflecting on this, I think actually it's, it's kind of like a pair of glasses. 
Uh, see, without glasses, you're all just a blob, uh, a bunch of colourful blobs. And I can't read my sermon notes, so this sermon just got very long-winded because I wander when I'm not reading. I need my glasses with the right lenses to make the scene in front of me make sense. So when I go to the optometrist, I don't know if you've ever been to one, but they had these weird-ass things that they stick in front of you that they're very, very clever. And there's this exhausting kind of process of comparing, you know, is option A clear or option B? You know, we're fine-tuning here, I need to see option A again. Whew, uh, no, I think B's better. But discouragement has a way of totally impacting our perspective. Like when I put these glasses on my kids' perfectly good eyes and they think it's hilarious that they can't see what's in front of them. You see, I wonder if you've ever noticed how discouragement changes our perspective. Think about the way that you, you view people. When we're discouraged, we tend to see other people as the source of frustration and annoyance. Our patience dwindles, our tempers flare. I've had times when I've been discouraged with a situation at work and all of a sudden, I'm treating my wife as, the, as if she's the cause of all the troubles. That's the kind of distorted perspective that discouragement can bring. I'm sure you can think of your own examples. I think discouragement becomes a lens that we view our circumstances through as well. Everything is seen in the most negative light. Through the lens of discouragement, the glass is definitely half empty. Even if, in actual fact, objectively, it's something closer to 80% full. I think discouragement changes the way we view people, it changes the way we view our circumstance, and it changes the way that we view God. That when we're discouraged, we so easily tend to see God through that same lens of our discouragement. Instead of allowing God to be the defining lens, uh, the defining reality, in actual fact, for God and His promises to become the lens that defines our reality through which we see everything, it's our suffering and our discouragement in it that clouds our vision and even our vision of God. So like the Israelites who accused Moses at the end of chapter 5, you've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, you've put a sword in their hand to kill us, except, well, no. Just remember two chapters before, they were already obnoxious to Pharaoh. That's why they'd made them his slaves in the first place. That's why he's been trying to kill them off for a couple of decades by this point in the story. Or, or think about, think about the, the perspective that Moses himself brought. Grumbling to God, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Well, no, of course not. God's told Moses exactly why he sent him, to rescue. But he also warned Moses that Pharaoh would not listen, that it would take God's mighty arm to bring Israel out. But Moses is discouraged and he's seeing both his circumstances and his God through that distorting lens which is why they so badly needed to listen, to allow God to provide them with the corrective lens of His character and His promises, to, to reshape their perspective, to remind Him of who He is and what He will do, that He is the good and faithful God. And I think it's good for us to see that in reminding them of those things, His promises, God isn't just giving a roadmap for, this, for their escape, He's not even really giving them an explanation. He's actually just providing a set of lenses through which to see their life. 
I am Yahweh, he says. I am the good and faithful God. These are my promises. I will save. I will do it. But we read that because of their discouragement, the Israelites didn't listen. I think there's a really important take-home message here for us. Will we listen? Will you use the lens of God's character and his promises to view your circumstances and to shape your hope? Or will you actually keep swapping glasses and, and actually allowing our discouragement to cloud our perspective? You might want to think, well, what does that look like on the ground? I think it means a number of choices. Particularly in the hard times, it means choosing to listen. Even when, perhaps especially when, we're short of breath, we run ragged and we're struggling to find time in the day just to do the basics. We need to choose to listen. Because what does discouragement do? It gets up in our face and it clouds our perspective. Friends, listening can be really simple. I know at the very point when you are most discouraged, the idea of sitting down for an hour's in-depth quiet time and devotion and, and, and thoroughgoing prayer for all of the missionaries and you have, it's just, don't, don't, it doesn't just feel an impossibility but in the motions of, of day-to-day life it can be an impossibility but that's not what listening has to be it can be very simple a devotion of a few short verses just allowing God to drip feed his perspective into the chaos of our lives Sometimes it's, it's helpful to just know a really practical tip to a good resource, www.desiringgod.org, check out their solid joys. This is the ministry of John Piper, great American pastor, a daily devotion that you can podcast and listen to, you could download the app and read it, you could just use the website. It's just really helpful drip feeding of God's word to reshape our perspective but it will be a choice. I think the other real-world implication is that it actually means choosing to listen even when we're not sure that we're going to like what we hear. (laughs) You remember how discouragement kind of means that we we tend to view everything uh, as the glass half empty and so we tend to bring that to our relationship with God, reluctant to open the Bible because we've already assumed that we know what we're going to read and it's it's going to be, it's not going to make any sense of my situation and it's I can't really see how it's going to give me any hope in the midst of it. But that's our discouragement speaking. Because if God spoke to Israel in slavery in Egypt, and the greatest thing that he could share with them was that, I am Yahweh, I will save. Well, then when our circumstances are hard, then I think it's clearly going to be good for us to turn and to listen to him offering us those same promises. So yes, in the midst of it, let's be pouring out our hearts to God, asking him to change those circumstances. Please, Lord, remove suffering, heal sickness, end conflict, restore relationship. But in the midst of it all, show me your goodness and your faithfulness. Help me to listen. And so as we do so, let's keep looking for the deeper and the bigger perspective that comes to us through Jesus. Because as the Bible continues from Exodus right through to the end, as horrific as the slavery in Egypt was, it is actually overshadowed by an even greater burden of our slavery to sinfulness. I think we struggle to see that in its right perspective. But surely we also see that as unimpressive as Moses was as the agent of God's rescue, well, he helps us to appreciate how good it is 
to see Jesus. The Israelites received God's promises that were all, I will. We received God's word to us, I have. And on that front, while God pointed Israel forward to an earthly home in the land of Canaan, he still points us forward too, to something far grander, an eternal home in the presence of Jesus, first in the glory of heaven and then for an eternity in a renewed creation. That is the goodness and faithfulness of God that we should long to reshape our perspective. The Israelites did not listen to God because of their discouragement and harsh labour. So we have a question. In the midst of our hard times, will we tune our ears to see the gentle assurance of our loving Heavenly Father? I am the good and faithful God. I have seen your suffering and heard your cry. Look to my son and know that you can depend on my character and trust in my promises. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of Exodus that lays before us a horrific situation, a suffering that we struggle to imagine. And we see in it your great compassion, your patience that you would give your promises again and again and again to a people that have heard them and and responded in belief and yet now accuse you in their discouragement. Father God, we don't stand in judgment over them in their discouragement, but we long to stand in the midst of our own hardship, learning from the lesson that you've laid before us that we might listen to you as you remind us who you are and teach us of your very great promises to us now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that those promises and your character would be the very lens that we look through all of life, longing to see you more clearly in the midst of it all. And so we pray, Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.